In April of this year, University of Missouri System President Tim Wolf held a press conference. It was in response to the national attention the university was receiving over the suicide of a student whose report of sexual assault was not properly handled. The university hired a law firm for an external investigation following an ESPN Outside the Lines report on the death of Sasha Menukori and how the university had not followed sexual assault reporting procedures outlined in Title IX. There was no attempt to cover anything up. Together with our Sexual Assault and Mental Health Services Task Force and the findings of the Independent Counsel's report, we are performing a major self-assessment of the training, resources, and policies of the University of Missouri system in these areas. This week's theme is Inequality in Education. I'm George Varney, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE with you on your beat for over 30 years. On this episode, we'll be helping you dig deeper into education issues, especially sexual assault on college campuses and segregation in public schools. We'll get a behind-the-scenes look at a recent outside-the-line story from ESPN investigative reporter Paula Levine and investigative producer Nicole Noren. Their recent story, entitled Athletes, Assaults, and Inaction, followed up the menu core investigation and detailed more Title IX problems at the University of Missouri and other schools. Noren was a producer on both stories. Whenever there's a roadblock, you just, with a FERPA thing, as, as reporters across the country can, um, I'm sure, attest to, uh, given how broadly schools are using FERPA now to withhold records, uh, it's basically you just have to find a creative way to go around it. The landmark Brown vs. Board decision turned 60 this year, but according to an investigation by Nicole Hannah-Jones of ProPublica, at certain schools, it seems like the court case never happened. Though in Tuscaloosa, the most integrated school had something like 12 AP classes. The segregated black school had none. It didn't even have physics. It didn't have a yearbook. It didn't have a newspaper. Investigating Title IX inaction and school segregation coming up on the IRE Radio Podcast. In late August of this year, investigative reporter Paula Levine and investigative producer Nicole Norrent published a piece for ESPN's Outside the Lines, where they investigated how several universities failed to follow Title IX procedures for reporting sexual assaults involving students. I recently talked to both of them about how they were able to find sources and navigate many obstacles, including FERPA, in order to get the story. During the course of your investigation, you conducted you know, multiple interviews. You covered everyone from... Um, you know, victims to the university officials, and you even, uh, I think, had Derek Washington's mother uh, gave you statements. Uh, how were you able to get in contact with all of your sources? Uh, Paula, we can start with you. Uh, I think, you know, tracking down some of the women was, was difficult. I know, you know, in some cases, and Nicole can talk to how, um, you know, one of, the, one of the women reached out to her, but in other cases, you know, we had police reports in which names were redacted, and it was uh, it was a lot of sort of connecting the dots to try to figure out okay who are these women and how can we get in touch with them and then also you're right I mean reaching out to the the two athletes involved in this you know reaching out through their parents to whatever direct numbers you might have for them um, you know it, it, you know in some cases we could use social media uh, you know they both had attorneys so that was another option for us but. But yeah, it was it was a lot of um, uh, you know just sort of using um, you know data to to track people down through addresses through through 
you know, roommates they might have had. And so, yeah, th- to some degree that, w- that was a little difficult. And, and, and I think Nicole, she has an interesting story with how she was able to connect with the two women at Missouri. Yeah, I actually, the day that our Sasha Minukori story aired um, in January, um, Teresa Breckel, the um, 2010 Derek Washington victim, actually emailed me um, because she had known Sasha and she had seen the story. And um, I had known, I knew her name. I knew she was the tutor, um, and I had been wanting to actually talk to her. I was interested in hearing uh, what her experience had been. And so uh, we started a dialogue, and it kind of snowballed from there and eventually led to... um, led to us being able to get in touch with the earlier 2008 accuser because those, uh, the women actually somehow, they started uh, reached, their 2008 accuser actually reached out to Teresa on her own after uh, a records request that we filed. So it was a kind of an interesting way that it all happened, but it ended up putting us in touch with both of the women in our story. Okay, I guess, yeah, it's easier if they reached out to you, but do you still have any concerns about interviewing victims of trauma? Oh, absolutely. Um, just, I mean, for, for instance, the 2008 accuser, no one had ever requested, um, or no one actually, I should say, no one had ever received her police report before from, um, from the university. Uh, we do know, I think, one reporter tried to request it um, in 2010 and that they weren't given the report for some reason um, back then. But uh, so she had been, she was called by the, a detective from MUPD and he uh, was told that someone had requested her police report. She had never, she'd been trying to move on. This is six years later. Um, this was something that she said that she was, had tried to put behind her, and suddenly it all came rushing back with a phone call from that same detective who had handled her, her case. And um, it was very difficult for her, to, when I had the first conversation with her, for her to tell me how my records request actually um, what it did to her and how it brought everything back. And it's, it's impossible not to be affected and to, not to know right then, like, how much our, um, our actions as reporters can sometimes affect some of the people in our story. So, yes, it was very much a concern for us. Um, and there was a lot of um, sensitivities involved that we had to consider in talking to all these different women in the, our story. Yeah, you never know how they're going to respond. I mean, it, it's... it's uh, you know, you approach everything with with as much sensitivity and um, openness as you can, but you just never know how different women are going to respond to this. I mean, we had, uh, you know, with the uh, Southern Idaho Tulsa cases, you know, we had one woman who she had never spoken to anybody before. Her case had never been publicized, but she had, I don't want to say she had no problem, but she was willing to speak to us, use her name, use her face, and, you know, within that same story, there was a woman that I had to hunt down who the only reason she called me back was because I, I tried to reach her at, her at her place of employment, and she was not happy about that, but she d- it did at least prompt her to call me, and all I was able to get out of her was answers to three questions, and after that she refused to communicate with me, you know, period. So you just, you just never know what the reception is going to be, and, and it all comes down to how that person feels after the incident that, that's happened to her, um, what she wants to see happen, you know, does she want to just put it behind her? Does she want to see some sort of justice? Does she, you know, what, what's her, in, is she concerned about um, this happening again? And, and so it's, it's hard. And, and, and then even during the interviews, once you sit down with them, um, our, you know, our, our interview with both women 
well, with all, all of the women, was, you know, it was very difficult, and, and they can get very emotional. I think the only thing that you can do when you're in that situation is just let them talk and, um, you know, let them, let them go through the emotions because it's not just, for them, it's not just answering questions. In, in a way, it can be almost like reliving the experience, and you just have to, you know, let that breathe a bit. So in addition to the human sources, you also went through uh, hundreds of documents from you know, a bunch of different places, from the victims, universities, police. Uh, how were you able to get the documents? Um, you already spoke to some about that, but especially going up against FERPA. Yeah, it was, uh, so the original, some of the original stuff we got were just very generic, general police uh, report requests. Uh, beyond that, though, um, we... We got what we could from with the limitations of FERPA, and then it became um, apparent that uh, we were going to have to dig deeper and go around it. Um, in my experience with dealing with both the Sasha and Yukori story and this story and dealing with directly with Missouri um, and trying to get records from them, it's um, whenever there's a roadblock, you just <laughs> the, the, with the FERPA thing as, as reporters across the country can. Um, I'm sure it has to, uh, given how broadly schools are using FERPA now to withhold records. Uh, it's basically you just have to find a creative way to go around it. Um, and in this case, we had two women who were very interested in finding out how the university had handled um, their reports of, uh, of sexual violence. And on their own, they went and requested some records. Um, the university quoted them uh, about $10,000 and $5,000 respectively, uh, for their records, and um, that was months ago, I believe four or five months ago when they actually put those requests in. And so we, we were trying to get records on our own as well, um, basically since February. And it's been a very, um, just a, a, a long back and forth with the school trying to get those. But the one, the biggest thing that we were able to accomplish and what opened up a lot of um, records for us and documents was we actually um, had both women were willing to sign a FERPA release, um, which allowed us then to um, essentially request records that involve them, and they no longer the school could no longer um, hide behind FERPA. Yeah, and that's a I mean that's a luxury that we had that you would only have if you had the the students working. Um, you know, you know, actively working to to get that information themselves and, and, and cooperating with you in the reporting. Yeah, it became um, like the the record. The difference in the like every we actually ended up filing a very large request for phone records and email records and everything like that. And um, the one thing I could say is uh, the, the the most fruitful information that we obtained was through going back and through knowing information that existed only. I mean, as <laughs> As you know, most schools are not going to hand over things unless they, you specifically ask for certain things that you know that exist. So that was the case in this story, absolutely. That was an excerpt. The full conversation can be found online at IRE.org. Nicole Hannah-Jones is a ProPublica reporter on the civil rights beat. As the 60th anniversary of the Brown vs. Board decision approached, she was looking for a new way to cover segregation. 
So my biggest problem with the way that we write about school uh, segregation is we tend to write about it and say we put a lot of data out, we show the segregation is happening, and then we leave it at that as if it's a benign process, as if no one's making any decisions that leads to the segregation. So I really wanted to show kind of how segregation in schools happens, what policymakers do, what groups do um, that drive segregation. Because if we're investigative reporters, data is just a starting point. Pointing out that there's a problem really should just be the beginning. And I think when it comes to race, unless we have someone who specifically writes down something saying they're doing this because these kids are black and brown, then we kind of don't want to touch it. Hannah Jones began looking at schools that had been released from a federal desegregation order in 2000, narrowing her focus to those that saw an increase in segregation. Of those, she picked the Tuscaloosa City School District in Alabama because it was rapidly resegregating after a 1979 court order had consolidated numerous middle and high schools into one of each. For a time, having a single middle or high school for the city meant the district was well integrated. This is no longer the case. Currently, a third of black students in that district go from kindergarten uh, through 12th grade without ever attending a school with a white classmate. So they're in completely segregated schools for all 13 years of their public education. During the year Hannah Jones spent working on the piece, which was also published in The Atlantic, she moved to Alabama for two months to report the story. Relocating helped her better understand the community she was covering, an advantage local beat reporters already had. To understand modern school segregation, it's important to have a clear understanding of the Brown vs. Board ruling. So what the Supreme Court actually rules is that in a country with a history of racial caste like the United States, to separate black children is inherently unequal, not because of resources, but because of the separation itself. And that public education indoctrinates you into what it is to be an American. It's what makes you an American citizen. It's one of the most important institutions that the country has, and that black children need to be um, learning with white children if they are ever going to have kind of a chance at equality. So the goal of Brown vs. Board is integration, not getting separate schools equal resources. Hannah Jones says this distinction is still relevant because current education programs like Race to the Top and No Child Left Behind deal not with diversifying schools but with better funding them. She recommends reporters look beyond basic segregation statistics to determine the policies that either help or hinder integration. For instance, Wake County uses, in North Carolina, uses socioeconomic status. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky is known as a national model. They still do a lot of busing to try to make sure that schools have racial balance. Only schools still under a federal desegregation order can explicitly use race in determining where to send students. As a result, some districts will use other means to keep schools segregated, including the often cited neighborhood schools approach. In these cases, a district might say that it can't help the demographics of the school. It simply reflects the demographics of the neighborhood. One thing that I did in Tuscaloosa is we mapped um, the racial demographics of the district, and then we mapped the school attendance zones, and the all-black high school was actually located in a white neighborhood. And those kids in that white neighborhood were bused three miles away, and the uh, kids that were bused into the all-black high school were bused two miles into an all-black high school in a white neighborhood. So even though the district was saying, we can't help that the schools are segregated because this is a neighborhood school, that actually was not what was causing the segregation in the district. Hannah Jones says that school districts can be just as heavily gerrymandered as political districts, and mapping out a school's attendance zones can be worthwhile. Along with students, teachers and school programs can be used to determine equality, Hannah Jones recommends looking at how many board-certified teachers one school has compared to another, as well as other indicators of quality.
So in Tuscaloosa, the most integrated school had something like 12 AP classes. The segregated black school had none. It didn't even have physics. It didn't have a yearbook. It didn't have a newspaper. So they had promised when they split that integrated school apart that those schools would be treated exactly the same. And it was pretty clear that they were not. Hannah Jones said it's important for journalists to confront their own beliefs about poverty's effect on educational performance. Question the claim that a school is underperforming because the students are poor. Well, maybe they're not performing well because they have the least qualified teachers and they consistently have the least qualified teachers. Maybe because they don't even have the classes that are going to get them ready for state tests. These are things that we should be examining instead of taking poverty at face value. ProPublica's website has a searchable list of school districts currently under federal desegregation orders. You can check to see if the districts in your area are on the list. It's worth taking a look at, even if you think you already know the status of your schools. Hannah Jones said many times the administrators in these schools were unaware that the federal order existed. Thank you for listening. You can find past episodes on both our SoundCloud page and on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. If you want to investigate crime on your local college campus, check out the Department of Education's campus crime data, which is available in the NICAR data library. We recently updated the data to include the most recent reports on alleged crime, arrests, and discipline reported for 2012. While you're on the NICAR page, check out the rest of our databases. We're lowering the prices and making five databases available to our members for free. And if you want to improve your reporting skills, check out our Fall Watchdog Workshops. We'll be traveling to Portland, Buffalo, and Jacksonville. The dates for each workshop are available online. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, our inbox is always open. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast, and she can be reached at web at ire.org, or you can reach me at George V, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-V, at ire.org. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm George Barney.